All right, folks, let's get into God's Word here. Uh, We're in Matthew 26, and we are starting in verse 47, but halfway through, well, not even halfway through, in verse 50, midway through verse 50, I'm going to read another passage. I'm switching over to John 18, because there's a part that you'll see, you'll see. So just keep your, keep your, just stay at Matthew 20, or 26, verses 47 on. But just so you know, midway through verse 50, I am going to read out of John. There's an incident that Matthew didn't include that I'd like to include, because I love what happens here, okay? And then after the John passage, I'll come right back into Matthew chapter 26, verse 50, the second half, okay? So you just stay in Matthew 26, and when it sounds like, hey, where is he? Just know that I've jumped to the Gospel of John, all right? And I'll be back, so stay there. So here we go. Matthew chapter 26, verses, uh, verse 47. While he was still speaking, again, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's being betrayed. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs, and from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Now I'm in John. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. It goes back just a little bit. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. He's talking about Gethsemane. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Love that. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered them, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have, not, I have lost not one. Back to Matthew. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, we're talking about Peter, stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will not at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels. But, But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. In in John, it tells us that he says, put it back in its sheath. Shall I not drink the the cup that the Father has given me? Then back to Matthew again. He says, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, that mob that was there, have you come out against as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what we have here in the scriptures of what's recorded. Though this is dark, this is a dark time. 
And uh, while it's a familiar story, we, we, can't, we can't go through it quickly um, without trying to picture what's happening here. This, you call this the hour of darkness, the power of darkness. At this point, Satan and his forces were uh, having, having their way. Evil men with evil intent were, were moving against our Lord and Savior. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that uh, as we walk through this, Lord, that we would see uh, both your sufferings as well as your power and your authority in the midst of all this. And, Lord, that we would, we would have this, these words even challenge us about how we would react. What would we do? What part would we play in a story like this? And, Lord, may, may we come out on the other side praising you more because of what we see here. So, God, I just pray that you'd use your word to change us, to challenge us, to transform us, to equip us. And, God, I, I pray that, uh, that we would be um, brighter, shining lights for you today, this week, and beyond because of what we're learning. We want you to transform our hearts. We want you to change us. We want you to use us for your glory and for your sake and for your kingdom, God. That's why we exist. So we love you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it, when we look at this passage, it, it's awful, awful easy to see that one of the topics that comes out of this is the pain of betrayal, isn't it? Look at, look at who's, who's, the, who's the main evil character. He's named a couple times. Who is it? Judas. And what is in that very first verse? It's Judas, and then there's a descriptor of him right away. What is that? Look, look in your passage. Judas, comma, one of the twelve. Do you think the readers would know who Judas was? Of course they would. I mean, everyone knew who Judas was, but why do you think he put in one of the twelve? He added that. He didn't need to. Could have just said Judas Iscariot and left it at that. Why do you think? What? Right. It re, it's to highlight, hey, this is, this is not Judas who was a, a general follower. This is a close associate, a, a friend. Jesus calls him a friend. Someone who had spent three years. What was that? Insider. He was an insider of insiders. He was the one who kept, he was the, the treasurer of the group. That meant he was trusted. So this is, this is treason of the highest sort. This is betrayal. That's not just supposed to make us say, oh, Judas is so bad, but imagine the effect it would have on, G on Jesus the man. He knew Judas was going to betray him, and yet for three years he poured heart and soul into him. And we've seen already a couple times he, he gives Judas an opportunity to not do what he's going to do. How do we put this, it was God's plan all along, and yet Jesus appealing, him, appealing to him to not do it, to give him opportunities. I, I don't know how you put those two together, but they're there, they're real. So Judas... He has to take the full responsibility of his choices. He was not a puppet, okay? But, but going back to why Judas is so highlighted here is just to look at the pain our Lord suffered. He was a man. I, I put that in our email. He was, it's right out of Isaiah 53. Jesus, the, the coming Messiah, was supposed to, he was going to be known as a man of sorrows and grief. He was despised and forsaken by men. He was not just a sorrowful person, oh, you know, generally melancholy. That's not what that means. He was a man who knew the worst kind of sorrows, the worst kind of grief, the worst kind of punishment, like none of us have ever 
experienced. So that when we read verses that say we have a compassionate high priest in Hebrews, he knows our weaknesses, and yet he calls us to run to him for what? For mercy and grace and help in our time of need. That this passage, this is part of the passage, look at the sufferings of our Lord. It's not just he got nails in his hand. That's not the depth of the suffering this passage, this whole event is really talking about. He bore our griefs. He bore our sorrows. He bore our sins. But don't miss the mercy and the compassion that he has for us because he was betrayed by those closest to him. He was rejected by the religious leaders who should have known who he was. He was rejected or treated with indifference by the very people God had called out to be separate from all the world, to be a shining light, the Jews. They should have recognized their Savior, and they didn't. He was rejected by mankind in general because this group that came to see him, or to see him, to seize him, was not just from the Jews. That word, what it says, soldiers, in what I read from John, that actually is referring to the Roman soldiers. There was at least 200 of them that were in that group, along with the officers, the Jewish officers that were part of the security guard at the temple. There was a huge mob that came. He was rejected by his own creation. And not only that, think about the suffering he felt all the time. The holy, holy, holy one, Jesus, God in the flesh. What do you think he felt about the sin that he faced every day in his human life? Are you ever disgusted when you hear about sin or maybe see something happen? You get disgusted. Imagine what he felt as the holy one. He felt that. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, he was still grieving. Why? Because Lazarus was still going to die again. Why? Because of the sin that had stained creation. Living, Jesus living in the midst of a, in a, a midst of a humanity that many are going to hell for eternity because of the rebelliousness and rejection of God. So I, I read this because we can't miss that in this passage. That's why, you know, we look at some of this, we see the trials coming up, and someone asked me, not, no one here, but someone asked me when they heard that we we're going so long through Matthew, and they said, well, why don't you just kind of summarize those last few chapters? Everyone knows about them. I said, no. We need to walk with Jesus and, and watch what's happening to him and see his reaction. We need to walk and watch the disciples and how they responded to this. Because you know what? We can't point fingers at those disciples for what they did. We are just like them. And if that, if that pushes back and say, oh, I would never do that, that's, that's your pride. That's exactly what Jesus was confronting in those disciples when we looked at that two weeks ago. Oh, Lord, I would never betray you. That's what they all said, all the disciples. Because they didn't have a correct view of themselves. In our own power, we will fall. We will. You will. I will. So that's what we're going through this, to watch and to, to take a moment. Why would, why would Isaiah talk about a, a suffering servant, a man acquainted with grief and sorrow, despised of men? I mean, you, so much so the, the picture, again, is that men would, wouldn't hide just, and when it says to hide their faces, that they'd be so aghast at what was happening to him and who he was and when he came, they would turn their faces and, and consider him nothing. God in the flesh is what they did, or is what they had in front of them. Does that make sense? 
So that's what I, I want us to, you know, think through. So if you've ever been betrayed by somebody, does it hurt? Yeah. But have you ever betrayed somebody? I have. I have. I'm, I'm a sinner, just like the rest of us. Okay? So when we see Judas, remember, he's a very good... Now I'm starting to get into the sermon, but just Judas is a very important reminder for us. Okay? And so we'll, we'll see that in a second. But I, I'm going to walk through this now, and, and we'll just see what's... Think, think of why there's so much time spent. I mean, there's, there's three chapters covering 24 hours. That's a lot of time. In the life of Jesus, how many chapters are devoted to his ministry of three years? Now, there's you know, about 15 chapters, but then when we get to the suffering, we get down to you know, that final five days, it's about 10 chapters, but the last 24 hours get three full chapters. I know that sounds silly, but just to see what we're supposed to learn from this and walk in it and then ask, okay, what do I need to learn here? Okay, so here we go. Let's uh, look at the first part in verses 47 through 50. I call this the pain of betrayal. This is what our Lord experienced on his road to the cross. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. First of all, don't miss the humiliation. Why would they come with a huge crowd? At least There's probably at least 250 people coming for him. It's at night, so they're coming with torches and lanterns. What, what is this scene? Imagine the scene. It's a mob scene. They're treating him, instead of being the great, the great shepherd of Israel, the king of kings, and they're treating him like a full-on robber. And actually, that word robber, it's better translated as a terrorist. That's the better translation. They were treating him with utmost disgrace as part of his humiliation. This was not just a few guys coming saying, hey, come with us. They were treating him like he was leading an insurrection. And he was a criminal of the vilest kind. And it was a great crowd, again, with swords and clubs and lanterns and torches. And and again, you have the temple guard and you have the Roman soldiers. Again, when it says soldiers, uh, what was stationed, again, on the Temple Mount, I've shown you many pictures. It was like a big rectangle wall with a platform with a temple on it. But at the north end of it, what you need to know is there was, a, there was what's called the Antonio Fortress. That's where the Romans would keep their soldiers, especially during the Passover feast, because the Jews were known for their rebelliousness. So the Roman soldiers would bring their soldiers from the coast at Caesarea and bring these, this huge cohort up to this fortress. So they, were over, they actually could oversee the temple grounds to see if there was any kind, because most of the rebellions started at the temple by the Jews, because they rebelled, not because they're just generally rebellious, they rebelled because it was a religion thing. It was, we are supposed to be ruled by Yahweh, and these foreign oppressors are bringing in their gods, and that's how many of the rebellions would start. So the Roman soldiers would be there just to watch, especially during Passover. The Passover, the big feast, one of the big three feasts, millions of Jews were there. So they had a a strong contingent. So this little walk from the Antonia Fortress down to the Garden of Gethsemane is maybe about a, a walk. It's not even a 10-minute walk from the fortress itself. So they've got this huge group, at least 250, comprised of Roman soldiers, Jewish soldiers who are part of the temple police, and then the religious leaders. Okay, so that's the group that's coming towards him. And, and 
what we have to understand is, again, that's a great representation of those who would reject him. We've got the religious leaders who are trained in what? The law. Another word, Scripture. They knew it better than anyone else. And here they are going against the person they were trained to recognize. And it wasn't just the chief priests who are the, the priests that are supposed to represent the nation to God. It's the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders amongst the people. It's the whole religious contingent coming against him. And we've got the Jewish soldiers, and we also got the Roman soldiers. All mankind is represented there. It's not the Jews that killed Jesus. It's not the Romans that killed Jesus. It's all mankind that rejected Jesus. But ultimately, who killed Jesus? Right, because Isaiah 53 says it pleased God to crush him. It was part of his plan. Plan talked about from the very beginning. Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve fell, God approached him and said, Hey, snake, you're going to be on your belly. It's going to be a sign of what happened here for everyone to be reminded of it. And, and woman, you're going to bear the seed, the, one, the, the seed born of a woman, and he's going to be the one to crush Satan. So right from the beginning, here's the one who is to come. It was God's plan from the beginning, okay? So we're all set with that, right? This is this in a dark hour, it's still God's plan. And now the betrayer, don't, look at that. Now at this point, he doesn't call him Judas, he calls him the betrayer. <laughs> what a title to have. I mean, there's people who appear in Scripture, many of them for bad reasons, but he gets the worst. He gets the title, the betrayer. When you say the betrayer and you're trying to think of who in Scripture is that talking about, there's only one person. It's Judas Iscariot. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign. Okay, stop. Jesus had given signs, hadn't he? Yes. Remember, he says he, it, when he turned water into wine, if you know anything in the gospel, his first miracle was at a wedding. And it says, and this was for a sign. It was the first of seven signs in the gospel of John. Jesus, whenever he did miracles, it was to be a sign. When he's teaching the people and breaking the bread and all these people are getting fed, these are all signs. Jesus gave given sign after sign after sign. And how ironic. The betrayer comes, and what is his sign? It's to betray the one who had given multitude of signs. Thousands and thousands of miracles. So many works that Jesus had done. John himself said, we can, the, all the books of the world cannot contain all of his teaching and all of his miracles. And yet, here's the sign that's emphasized in the hour of darkness. It's a kiss. And this word, what says, I will kiss the man. The word kiss is an intensified form of kiss. It means to kiss with it wasn't just the you know in brazil we do the two kisses on either side and and they even had it in that culture just that's familiarity but th this one is a intensified of kissing continuing to hug of friendship of intimacy this is this is a, a sign of close relationship and that's going to be a sign to betray the king of kings the great savior and why would he have to kiss him well, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's dark. They don't have like floodlights or anything. They're coming with their torches. And just to make sure, the one I kiss is the man that you're supposed to seize. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Lord. No, he doesn't say Lord, does he? Greetings, Rabbi. Some distance there. And he kissed him. And then Luke tells us, Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Just highlighting his his, his evil action here. Take responsibility. Jesus said to him, friend, 
friend. And that word is not philos, that means close, affectionate friend. It's, it's more of the word from like comrade or, or teammate, but it's like one step removed from affection. It's also the same word used in Matthew 22 when, when the, the, the king who's holding the wedding feast for his son, and he comes up to this guy who doesn't have the wedding garments. Just before the wedding ceremony and celebration is supposed to start, he goes through and he finds a man who's not wearing the garments. He'd snuck in and he says, friend, where are your garments? And what did he do to that guy? He got thrown out and he says, cast into the outer darkness. Same word, that friend once removed. Greetings, rabbi. Oh, my goodness. Where am I? There we are. Betrayed by a friend. But, okay, so think on this. This is a little, little close note or little note here. So he has a close association with Jesus. He's a friend. But, but here's the deal. Many of you, I mean, all of us are here because we are at church and we want to hear about Jesus, right? But some people think going to church makes them good with God. Judas hung out with God in the flesh. Did that save him, being around Jesus? No. So, so what is the lesson we can learn from this? We have to have a personal relationship where we're all in for Jesus. doesn't mean you're perfect, but Judas was in, in, in this relationship with Jesus for what he could get out of the deal. He was skimming money out of the treasury, it says. He wanted Jesus to be, you know, the Messiah who would rule as a political ruler because what would he get out of the deal? Oh, a position of authority and power over people. That's what the disciples were always arguing about. Who's going to be first? Who's going to have the highest position next to the Messiah? Well, Judas was in it for what he got. If you're a Christian, you're in it for what you can give to him, for his glory. This is something worse. This should shock you. Someone who's the closest in the inner circle. He went to church all the time. He was with Jesus. Talk about a pastor, right? And yet, there's nothing saved about him. So that's supposed to make us think. Going to church doesn't make you good with God. It's what is, what's your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you an associate that know about him? Or are you a follower that loves him, believes in him, and wants to serve him, no matter where he has you go or what he has you go through, Right? So that's something that really challenged me thinking, thinking on this passage. But also, too, I, I've already talked about truly Jesus was a man of sorrows. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That means very intimately acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Think about the sorrows and grief he knew. Emotional, physical, spiritual. Again, the, the greatest pains he, he was acquainted with was not just physical. I mean, he, he was hungry at times. He was so tired after his preaching, it says at one point they actually had to put him into the boat before, and he fell asleep in the boat right away. He was so exhausted after all of his preaching. And they had to wake him because there was a storm and he got scared. So he had more work to do. But Jesus was acquainted with, he had no place to call home. He was a man on the go all the time. He didn't have the security and, and luxuries that, that we do. Man, I want to make sure we have a good home, a good roof over our heads. Is that a bad thing? No. But Jesus didn't have one during his, the, uh, his ministry. 
He did not have one, it says. He was a man who was acquainted with physical sorrows and too, obviously, when he, when he was being rejected. I mean, what we're going to see, the, the amount of pain he went through right after this passage, you know, being seized upon and then taken to the various trials, and then he's, he's beaten, he's, he's hit in the face, he has, he has these, this thorn of crowns shoved down on his head. And, and I've, I've shown you the picture before, haven't I, of the thorns that were there? They weren't like the little rose thorns that we have here. These are long little spikes this kind of the thorns that are there in Israel. And, and again, nails driven through his hand. He's beaten. He's whipped. He goes through amazing physical pain, but that's not the greatest pain. Spiritual pain. Spiritual pain? What? Well, watching his own, you know, fearing for them. You know, he's looking out for them. But it's also when, what's the worst part that he faced? When his father turned his back. He received the wrath of God for our sin the wrath that we're supposed to take. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried that out at the moment where he he breathed his last because that was the moment when he took on our sins. He was a man of sorrows because here's the deal. It's so important for us to remember that when you're going through tough times, you're going through the darkest of times, cancer, loss of a loved one, a friend turns on you. You lose a job. You lose your house. There's all sorts of things that can happen in this life, right, that are terrible and tragic. Who understands? Jesus does. He understands. He's compassionate. That's, it's so important for us to get this through your brains, get this through my brain. I have to remind myself, too. He knows our pain. He is our compassionate high priest, and he loves you. He loves me. Isn't that cool? When he says, please run to come with boldness and confidence to the throne of grace where you may find help in your time of need. He means it. He is our high priest who understands us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand that? You're not condemned if you're a Christian. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Do you know his main job right now is to intercede on our behalf? That's what he's doing right now. When he was on earth, he was, you know, bring, he was bringing the gospel message and he's saying, here I am, I'm the king. And then he ascended after he died on the cross, paying for sins, and then he ascended to heaven. His job from that point forward is to be our advocate, our high priest who intercedes on our behalf. You know, he does that for you. That's in the present sense. He is interceding. You guys understand that? Isn't that cool? And when he intercedes and when he makes a defense for us, how effective is it? Well, he has the ear of God, doesn't he? Does. But, I, but after all this, I want us to look at that scene very quickly from, uh, from John about, about what happens in the midst of this time. And we'd already talked about Judas who betrayed him. He, he knew where Jesus was going, so he brings this mob with him. And then Jesus, here's the deal. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, what, what does that tell us? He's not a victim. He's going into this. Now, remember, two weeks ago we talked about, was he feeling the pain? Yeah, he was. He was agonizing. 
As a matter of fact, an angel had to come and minister to him after his first time. He says, he told his disciples, watch for me and pray. And he was, fell down prostrate for the Lord. And he was crying out. He was sweating blood. And he needed help. He was feeling it. But after the third time, it says he saw them coming and he moves, he steps forward to greet this mob. And he knew it was going to happen. And he went forward willingly, not, not loving the, the pain that was coming. He says he endured the pain and despised the shame. But for the joy set before him, he moved forward towards the cross. He moved forward. He didn't shrink back from this huge crowd that were coming from him. He stepped forward, a man on a mission. He was in control. He is in control. Who are you coming for, he asked. And here's the deal. This little side note is that he he was being specific because here's the deal. A mob's going to come. They see 11 guys following him. They're treating him like he's a terrorist, you know, a criminal who also might get swept up in this. Well, the disciples. And Jesus had prayed in John 17 that he'd prayed to the Father, all that you've given to me, I haven't lost one except for the son of perdition, Judas. He was keeping a promise to them that they wouldn't get taken. And that's what he was being specific in this crowd so that he could say, let them go. And he does say that, and they do go. They fled. Who are you coming for? And then his response, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. His response in the Greek is, ego me, I am. It's the Hebrew for Yahweh. What happens? It says that they fell back. They'd asked for a sign. Judas gives them this treasonous sign. So Jesus gives them a sign. I am. It says that they fell back. Every one of them, Judas included, fell at his feet. Because he was standing right next to him. It says everyone fell back. <laughs> I'm, a, I, I'm a soldier and I see that happen. What am I thinking to myself? What are you thinking? What are we doing? <laughs> Think about that. Just like when Jesus died on the cross, who was the first one to say something, uh uh-oh? It was a Roman centurion who says, truly, this man was the Son of God. What did we just do? That's what Jesus says. Here I am. And they they fall down. It's his self-identification. He declares who he is and he falls down. It doesn't mean that they became worshipers, but they were just bowled over by his statement. But then he asked them again, hey, we got to keep things going here. Who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Just let them go. And he took care. He was a shepherd looking out for his sheep. And, and so these disciples were taken care of. So all this displays is that Jesus, even in the midst of that chaos, the humiliation, the hatred, the evil, it's, it was called the power of darkness. This is the hour, your hour, the power of darkness. Satan, remember I told you that two weeks ago, Satan's been a part of this scene. Because remember, Judas, when he says, oh, is it I? Jesus says, you know it's so. And he says, at that point, and he says, go do what you got to do. And he leaves the, the you know, last supper, the Seder meal. Jesus left, says that at that point, Satan entered him. Satan's been part of this scene. Satan is behind all this. Jesus is still in control. He's no victim. He's in charge. So let's get back to Matthew. I wanted to stop there because I want you to see that in the darkness, in the darkest of times, Jesus is always in charge, both back then or even now. 
So we see the plan of God now moving forward in verse, the last part of our passage, verses 50 through 56. It says that they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, we know from another passage, that's Peter, impetuous Peter, I'm the brave one, hey, I'll die with you. He stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand up for you, Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. And we find out that the, high, the, the servant that was cut, his name is Malchus. We learned that from Luke. So evidently he was a well-known guy. I don't know if he became a Christian later because here's the deal. He cut off the ear and what does Jesus do? Peter, stop it. I don't need you to do that. Okay, he takes him takes his ear and sticks it back on, and boom, he's healed. Okay, that's a second major sign in my book, maybe. I'm a soldier, and what am I thinking? I better hear what he's saying. I'm just kidding. But think about it. He's just given them another sign. And yet, they're so blinded by their hatred of Jesus. This is the power of darkness. They, didn't, they saw two things right then and there that should have shocked them, and yet they proceeded forward. Man, he was seized by a mob. And again, in his correction of Peter, he wasn't saying, hey, you, this is not for passivism. Hey, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. He's just saying, look, I don't need you to do this, Peter. I've got a, I've got a mission to accomplish. He says, do you think I couldn't call for 72,000 Angels, that's 12 legions. There's 6,000 in a legion. One angel, by the way, in the Old Testament, took care of 185,000 troops in the Old Testament. Just one angel. He could have 72,000 like that if he wanted to. Oh, and Jesus is the creator of the universe, and I think he could take care of the situation. Okay? Again, this is a great picture because how overwhelming was that, that mob? Because do you think Peter could take on all 200, maybe 50? Well, of course not. And, and the, the picture, the, the sword is maybe about this long, the, the word used for the sword. So maybe, you know, a foot and a half. You take on, I don't think so. But you say, no, I've got a cup I'm supposed to drink. What is that cup? We talked about it a few weeks ago. What does the cup of the Lord stand for in the Old Testament? The wrath of God, the judgment of God on sin, the payment. It says, no, this is, this is why I came. This is why I came. I've got to fulfill my, my mission. And again, he displays his authority over every situation. The questions he asks, he gets them to be specific. He says, let, this man, let these men go. So did these soldiers take these men? These potential terrorists too, who'd been following this terrorist there to arrest? No, they, got, they were able to leave. We know from the book of Mark that one of the disciples, he wasn't one of the 12, but another one who's along with them, they seized, for, they tried to grab him, and he ran away naked. We think that's actually Mark himself. Isn't that funny? A little, little, little story there of their, of their fear and their cowardice. But, God, but Jesus all along was saying, hey, I'm fulfilling my promise. I'm still in charge as the king of kings, the shepherd of the sheep. But don't miss this, folks. Don't miss this. This applies to us. Jesus in this crazy sin scene where it's the power of darkness, the Satan at his best, who is still in charge? Jesus is. He's, he's orchestrating their pawns in his hands. He is fulfilling scripture. He's accomplishing the plan of God as a willing servant, a willing sacrifice, the one who had come to die. 
our great shepherd who loves his sheep so much. He's not a hireling who would run away at the first sign of danger. He brought this up in John chapter 10. He is the shepherd that was willing to lay his life down for his sheep, for you, for me. Isn't that amazing? Don't miss this. We've got the pain of betrayal, but we've still got the power of God being displayed in the midst of all this, and the plan of God is moving forward. And the plan of God is still moving forward. Never forget that. We are part of the plan of God. In 2018, His church all around the world, we are accomplishing His plan. We can't see it all day to day all the time, but He got you up. He gave you breath this morning because He wants you to serve Him today. And one of your jobs in serving Him today is to come to church and to worship and praise His name. Isn't that cool? And now when you leave, another job you have to do, serve Him however, he would, however you know, the opportunities will present yourself, whether it's to go out with your dad and honor Him and love Him, or if it's to go and, you know, whatever He has for us, we are part of His plan moving forward. Wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, Jesus is in control. Control of you, control of me, control of circumstances. So when it says that there's no temptation, that word temptation means trial or struggle or hard time. There's no temptation that has overtaken you except that is common to man. It's happened to others before. But God is faithful. He's the faithful one. It says that he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. In your own power, it's beyond your ability. But if you walk with him, he will give you the ability to handle it. It says, but with the temptation, he will also give you a way of escape. Doesn't say he, but he tells you what the escape is. The second part is that you may endure it. He will give you the strength. Follow your shepherd who's still in charge. And, and how is he using that trial? What, are, what does Scripture say about some of the purposes of any trial that we're in? There, he's got purposes for him. One of them, we're supposed to consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face you know, trials of various kinds because it's producing perseverance in you, the ability to endure. And perseverance, when you let it have its effect and you keep pursuing, you know, persevering and following God and choosing not to sin and you just, God help me, God help me, and He helps you, it says that you, one of the end results, you become more mature, complete, lacking in nothing. So that's one of the, one of the purposes. Another purpose of, of trials and suffering that God walks you into and walks you through and walks beside you, in front of you and behind you, it's to conform you to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 28 and 29. It's to make you more like Jesus. So follow Jesus. Follow our great shepherd. We see him here totally in charge, the willing sacrifice, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame because he loves you and he loves me. Isn't that cool? All right, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go actually into a time of communion. We're going to end with communion today, and uh, so that'll be a fitting way to celebrate our Lord. Okay, so let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for what we have here. You are our great shepherd, and, and Lord, it pains me to see what they did to you. There was nothing, nothing you did that deserved this, this kind of treatment from the Jews, from the Romans, from, even from your own disciples. But yet you are in charge, you, are, you walked willingly into this. God, what, what compassion you must have for us. And how, how little we think of you when we say, oh, he doesn't love me anymore. How could he love me? How could he ever forgive me? We just don't understand what you've suffered. So help us to understand. Help us to run to you. 
Help us to just depend on you and, and fall at your feet at the foot of the cross, recognizing there how much you love us and how much you, you want to change us and use us for your glory. God, use us. Use this church. Use these people, all of us, for your glory, Lord. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.